0: Now, ladies and gentlemen, we would like to make a presentation to the owner of the Los Angeles Wolves and the man who has sponsored the Wolverhampton Wolves this year, Mr. Jack Kent Cook.
1: And when we decided to start soccer here in America, I was warned constantly that this is a dull game.
0: Isn't it one of the most exciting games you've ever seen in your life? There isn't a writer in Hollywood, there never has been one, who could have written a script for the game tonight. Next year, the year after, and all the years to come, we're going to be proudly privileged to bring you wonderful fans, Major League Soccer here in Los Angeles, and thank you so much. And we know all of the United Soccer Association owners share Mr. Cook's sentiments. They feel privileged to be able to present professional Major League Soccer throughout North America. The spectacular match you've just watched is indicative of the type of soccer you'll see played in the United Soccer Association.
1: Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast Devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon.
0: All right, friends, how's it going? All right, let's get this going, shall we? It's uh, Tim Hanlon, your congenial host for another fun-filled episode of Good Seats. Still available, our curious little podcast journey into what used to be in professional sports. Thank you once again for joining us. Uh, If it's your first time here, welcome. Have a seat. Wherever you are, give a listen, and hopefully we'll uh, entertain you for a little while. And uh, if you've come back for uh, another episode uh, after having heard some others, uh, we can't appreciate your uh, patronage enough uh, for coming back. Thanks for doing so. Today we're uh, stumbling and rumbling back to uh, soccer, pro soccer, uh, but a very important inflection point uh, for the history of professional soccer in this country. Uh, and we take you back uh, through the, uh, the time machine, the way back machine, uh, to the mid 1960s when a bunch of things were, uh, congealing together, uh, to essentially create seemingly out of thin air. But if you're paying attention, uh, the seeds of, uh, of some true development of what became, uh, uh, the first real substantial modern approach, uh, and attempt to bring top tier professional soccer to this, uh, this here country of the United States. Uh, A couple of things were happening. You had in the early 60s this thing called the International Soccer League, which essentially was an assemblage of top-tier, full uh, foreign teams from Europe and South America playing in a tournament, mostly in the New York area, but it expanded a little bit as the uh, the years went on. But televised, certainly locally, a little bit nationally as well. Uh, An entrepreneur who we'll talk about by the name of Bill Cox – uh, he a, a controversial figure and, and and one, frankly, of the only people still historically today, still uh, you know, although, he's, although he's long gone, banned from the sport of baseball, and we'll talk about why he was such a controversial figure. but he was the guy who was bringing in teams and uh, and drawing great crowds uh, mostly amongst the ethnic population of top tier soccer talent and and teams and competition in the United States. Uh, through most of the early 1960s. 1966, interestingly, was also an interesting event uh, in that the uh, World Cup was really, for the first time, broadcast uh, in its entirety, the final at least, uh, here in the United States. Uh, Not live, but pretty darn close uh, in, I think it was a two-hour delay, uh, narrated by uh, football uh, legend uh, broadcaster uh, Jim Simpson, I'd love to find a copy of that tape if it exists. I'll put that out there to our to our listeners. Uh, but uh, NBC did run uh, in its entirety a very thrilling uh, 1966 World Cup final uh, across uh, the United States, and uh, it did pique the interest. It uh, got quite a good good rating. Uh, the curiosity was uh, was uh, palpable. Uh, England obviously winning that that, that tournament, and uh, it uh, did set uh, a few things in motion, including Mr. Cox who. Uh, saw what he hoped was the next step uh, in his soccer journey and his business venturing. And that was to create, in his mind, uh, a professional top-tier league in the United States. Of course, he wasn't the only one with that idea. There were at least two other groups in addition to his uh, that uh, sort of seemingly popped out of nowhere in 1966 uh, to uh, essentially uh, attempt uh, the, uh, the big dollars, or at least they thought they saw big dollars, uh, by trying to uh, bring b- top-tier professional soccer and league uh, to the United States. We'll talk about all of that, uh, the messy beginnings, uh, the messy middle parts, uh, the dire straits uh, after this uh, this uh, crazy period of time from roughly late 1966 to uh, early and mid-1969, uh, and frankly, the doorstep in 1970 where basically professional soccer, after having gone through all of that, Uh, as we'll talk about, uh, almost being left for for dead professionally. Our guest is Dennis Cease, uh, and he is the author of the book called The Rebirth of Professional Soccer in America, The Strange Days of the United Soccer Association. It's actually a bit of a misnomer uh, because uh, the United Soccer Association, or USA, was one of the two leagues in 1967 uh, that aimed to bring pro top-tier soccer to the U.S., the other being the National Professional Soccer League, or NPSL. Uh, that book and our conversation with Dennis Cease uh, talks about that and much, much more, both leagues, as well as all the uh, prelude and the aftermath uh, in our conversation coming up in a couple of seconds with our friend Dennis Cease uh, in just a couple of seconds. Uh, let's see, promotionally, we want to remind you that Audible is uh, uh, our longtime sponsor. And uh, if you haven't tried the audiobook service for yourself from Audible, please do so. Uh, you will not be disappointed. AudibleTrial.com/goodseats. It's your place to try for free uh, one month of the service and a free audiobook download of your choice from over 185 or so thousand titles uh, to choose from in dozens of genres, uh, some of which I can't even imagine uh, exist, but they're there. Uh, everything from fiction and nonfiction, all kinds of subsectors uh, a- uh, thereafter and there therefore thereof, whatever. Uh, audibletrialcom trial.com slash good seats, get your free book or your audiobook download, get your free one month subscription, uh, trial of the service. And uh, yes, you can cancel at any time. It's basically no risk. And uh, we appreciate your doing so. Of course, also, we encourage you to go to SportsHistoryCollectibles.com uh, and uh, where you can get all kinds of fun uh, memorabilia and uh, uh, programs and guides and stickers and buttons and pennants and you name it, from leagues and teams that uh, are no longer with us, a few that still are in previous incarnations. It is a treasure trove. You will lose uh, at least a number of minutes of your life by going to this site and just at least meandering and wandering through all the cool stuff that uh, proprietor Dean Mitchell has found and has available for sale. Uh, But I guarantee you will find something that will pique your interest. And of course, if it does, at SportsHistoryCollectibles.com, all you need to do is enter the promo code GOODSEATS at checkout and our little secret you're going to get 15% off your purchase so go go early go often to sportshistorycollectibles.com again remember write down don't forget tell your friends good seats being the promo code for your 15% discount at checkout okay let's uh, let's get into soccer uh, and and the very intriguing and important times of the mid and uh, late 1960s the real birth of top tier professional soccer in this country and Of course, it wouldn't be uh, the history of soccer in this country without uh, a complete uh, uh, misread, misfire, and all kinds of shenanigans uh, to undermine it in the process. And it's a fascinating story. Our conversation with Dennis Cease. Coming up, please enjoy. We kind of opened up the Pandora's box with uh, an early episode we had uh, uh, in the spring of last year with Paul Gardner, the uh, esteemed... Uh, soccer journalist who's been around, frankly, since uh, uh, the uh, even the the years prior to uh, the birth, I guess, or the rebirth of uh, Major League uh, Division I professional soccer in this country. But before we get to, to all of that, um, how about a little bit of background mm-hmm. about uh, you uh, as an individual, you as a professional, and how you uh, stumbled across this topic, uh, esoteric as it might seem to some of our audience, uh, in the first place? um sure
1: uh i i'm born in western pennsylvania uh, right outside of pittsburgh so you know, american you know gridiron football was and still is the biggest game in town there um so soccer i mean people started playing it when i was a kid and i remember the first time i saw someone like oh, i'm coming back from soccer practice and we were like they might as well have been aliens this was been would have been like the early 1980s so i knew it existed but it wasn't a big thing in my life until I was working at the University of Pittsburgh uh, around 2006 when the World Cup was going on and at that point in time I was in charge of hiring graduate assistants in the library um, and I'd hired uh, I just didn't do it on purpose but I had a very international team of students working I had students from Turkey and Russia and you know so on and so forth so when the World Cup was on it was a big deal to us. We would, you know, we had like these streams going on and in, 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 in our, this little mail room where we would hang out and things like that. And, um, someone told me, Terry Henry caught my eye and I and someone said, well, Hey, he plays for Arsenal. And I said, okay. So I started following Arsenal, And I, I've really been into, um, club football ever since then. Um, I still am one of those suffering human beings known as an Arsenal fan. Uh, and what really led me to this is around 2010, a friend and I who had also really gotten into uh, club football, the premier league in particular, we decided to write a blog about um, football in England, but also in Spain. And we called it, you know, the conceit was, Oh, look at these silly Americans who don't know anything about this game. And we called it, we don't know it as football. And I started writing a lot about soccer and learning a lot about it, you know, via that process. And one day I, in 2011, I believe it was in the spring, Manchester City played Stoke City in the semifinals of the FA Cup that year and I wanted to write a post I knew that Stoke was one of the oldest club teams so I wanted to write a post about Stoke's history and I stumbled upon a reference to the Cleveland Stokers and that was the moment where this whole sort of Pandora's box opened right in front of me and I found out you know from you know the reference to the name and then I found out that Gordon Banks who had, you know, heroically been the keeper for the 1966 World Cup winning team was on this Stoke City team who became the Cleveland Stokers. And I just couldn't fathom being from Western Pennsylvania and just knowing all the history of Cleveland Municipal Stadium. I just couldn't fathom these men running around there in the summer of, of 1967 on that pitch. So I just started digging. And I hope that wasn't too long winded. But that's sort of led me into all of this.
0: No, that's great. And um uh yeah, I, I you know, I I was a, just a mere toddler in, in 67, not even um but uh just uh, knowing what I know of the old Cleveland Municipal Stadium and uh, Cleveland in general, I, you got to wonder how just how many people were rattling around and and it did it did indeed open up a Pandora's box, I'm sure. Um so what then um uh convinced you to uh, perhaps I guess pursue this as a project, and how did you determine that a book was the best form for such uh, et cetera
1: well i didn't know i didn't know that it would ever become a book. It was just something, and you had mentioned uh, you had asked me about my background what I do for a living is I am um, a research and instruction librarian. Right now i work with high school students but a lot of what's on my resume and a lot of what i was doing especially at that time was working in universities uh, i was working at american university when i made this discovery about the cleveland stokers so i started going back into their newspaper files. i just thought it was fascinating i thought it was fun you know, it was a fun way to kill time uh, and I, so i i started with the stokers and i noticed that the next year in 1968 Uh, Santos had done their summer tour in America, which they were wont to do. And they played the Cleveland Stokers and they lost, they lost two, one on, I I believe it's two, one, it was two, one. And there was a near riot in the stands. There was a, you know, um, a a poor call on a disallowed goal, apparently, apparently according to Santos. And that just blew my mind all over again. Not only was this, did this team exist, but here's another legend traipsing through Cleveland playing a game. And not only did he play a game that, you know, they they lost. That was one of Santos. Like, I think they only lost one other match on that tour. And that was a year, I guess that was when, you know, obviously that was near Pele's peak and just on the club level, they were nearly unstoppable. And it was just, uh, again, amazing. Like, how did this happen? How how come does anyone know about this? And so it just, my, my, the professional part of me that likes to dig and that's interested in research They just really went hand in hand. So once I started making these discoveries, uh, then I learned about, um, well, at that point in time, the Wolverhampton Wanderers were still in the Premier League. So then I found out that they became the Los Angeles Wolves and it just snowballed, snowballed from there. And what really kicked it off into like the next level is I I, I had cobbled together some information and there was a really fantastic blog that. I'm sad to say, I don't keep up. I haven't kept up with over the past year or so. And I think it might be shutting down, but it's called in bed with Maradona. And they were very much into sort of the hidden histories of, uh, of, of world soccer and soccer culture. You know, they weren't interested in transfer rumors. They wanted like stories from like the nooks and crannies of of the history of the sport. And so I pitched the idea to them and they said, yes, you know, write something up. So I wrote something up that was probably, uh, somewhere around 2,000, maybe 3,000 words at the most. Uh, just summing up the United Soccer Association, um, which is the league, you know, well, I'm sure we'll get to that, that the Stokers initially played for and the Wolves. And I wrote that up and they, I sent it to them and they reacted like really incredibly well to it. You know, I was a struggling writer at that time. I, I mean, I still am. So it was great to just even get affirmation. And they ran it on the blog and that was a huge deal to me because I read the blog and... So they they, they put it out there for me, and that was like a huge victory for me at the time. So that was the first impetus. But even then, I never thought that it would be a book.
0: But you did commit to writing as part of your research efforts, right? At what point did you sort of recognize that uh, form-wise, form form factor-wise, that uh, the book was the best way? I mean, I I, I suspect that in your research you probably also discovered, uh, maybe not a whole lot, but uh, video snippets and maybe some audio and some other sort of media, so to speak, uh, in the mix, uh, when did you sort of make the determination that uh, publishing this thing for um, uh, for others to read would be uh, would be desirable?
1: Well, I was on a again, it was weird. I was on a mailing list. I was working at American University, and at that point in time, I had a chance to maybe perhaps get tenure. Librarians there are tenured. And okay, I thought it'd be great to like, you know, publish something. And there was a conference about, you know, the social history of sport and sport history and things like that. As part of the, uh, popular culture association of America, they had a track about like sports history. So I submitted essentially, um, the first couple of paragraphs of that post as like an abstract for a paper and it was, uh, accepted. So I presented, uh, what I had learned to that point about the United Soccer Association as a paper at this conference. Now, a woman named Christine Carnicky, who I found out later, played uh, semi-professional soccer as a woman here in the United States, she was an editor and is an editor at Roman and Littlefield, and then it was Scarecrow Press, but they've sort of been folded into the Roman and uh, Littlefield family at large. Uh, She uh, emailed me. Uh, She had seen the abstract, and she said, you know, I'm really interested in this. You know, could we meet? And I, mean, I, I fell out of my chair. I, didn't, I mean, this was like a dream come true, like a publisher contacting me. So I was very nervously said, sure, I'd love to meet you. And she met and she said, you know, her brief was to get more books about soccer. Her the editors above her felt that it was something that was really starting to pick up traction historically and currently in America. And she asked me, do you think there's a book here? And other people had told me they thought there was a book there. But at the time, I, deep down in my heart of hearts, I did not know if there was, but of course to her, I said, sure. Yeah, there's a book here. Definitely. So she said, submit a proposal. And I did. And uh, it was accepted in the summer of 2013. And that started my journey of really sort of next level research.
0: All right. Well, let's so sort of get into that journey. Um, so obviously, you want to begin at the beginning, right? So, so what are the seeds of of this, right? Because the uh, the wolves and the Stokers or the uh, Stoke City, you know, they, they didn't just show up magically in 1967 uh, with uh, you know just intent, right? Uh, I, there, there are obviously seeds of why these two, uh, almost or actually three, to begin with, right? Uh, professional organizations mm-hmm, yeah. uh, coalesced in in the year of 1967, to actually. Uh, give a shot in the arm to uh, professional soccer in this country, but maybe you want to take our audience back to sort of some of the seeds of of what the prelude was to um, to this uh, somewhat bizarre and astonishing uh, events, a series of <laughs> events in 1967, seemingly out of nowhere.
1: Yeah, sure. I, I would say the, um, from what I can tell is the real impetus for this sort of like, as you say, bizarre sort of outburst in 1967 was I would, I would trace back to 1960 uh, with a gentleman uh, named uh, he was known as Bill, but William D Cox. And he is, I'm sure he is someone who you could do a few different podcasts on because he's just a really interesting sort of figure shadowy figure in the periphery of American sports. He had owned the Philadelphia Phillies briefly, in the early forties. And he got, he ran file of, uh, commissioner Kennesaw Mountain Landis, uh, accusations of gambling and things like that. So he was drummed out of major league baseball and is still one of the few people who has ever sort of banned from baseball for life. So he became, he was a wealthy sort of, you know, well-to-do man, Yale baseball player. Um, so he, you know, obviously undaunted, you know, did pursue some other things from 1943 until around uh, 1959, he decided, and all these things started happening at once men like him, like sort of international well-to-do Americans started, you know, you know, with the advent of commercial air travel and things like that, it started to become very global for men of means. Uh, And they started to travel and notice, what is this? What is, what is what are there a hundred thousand people in, in this stadium in, in Rio? Why is, why is this AC Milan thing? Why are there people jammed to the rafters? 50,000 people in this stadium. And they started to notice that this is a big thing. Like it, it hasn't really touched our country to this level yet in terms of like commerce, but this is something worldwide that we should probably be taking a look at and could probably make money off of. Now what made him unique is that he actually was a fan of the game. So what he started in 1960 in New York city was, he called the international soccer league. And one of his beliefs was that Americans didn't take to the game as uh, folks did other and other places around the globe, because they hadn't seen it played at the highest level. They didn't get regular exposure to the Real Madrid's and AC Milan's and and whoever, the Manchester United's. So if he could showcase the top qualities from around Europe and South America, and then eventually somehow sort of knit an American team together on the fly, that then he could prove that soccer could really succeed commercially. Uh, and economically in the United States. So he started this league called the International Soccer League in 1960, and they started a tournament, and they had teams from um, from the areas I just mentioned, South America and Europe, come over and play uh, a tournament in New York City. And that first initial tournament was won by, uh, I'm going to probably pronounce their name wrong, but a team in Brazil called Bangu, uh b-a-n-g-u and as far as i know and as much as research i've done on i'm I'm by no means uh an expert on brazilian uh soccer um they still seem to me relatively obscure but at this time in the 1960s they were a regional powerhouse so they were they were brought over and they ended up winning this tournament and it was set up there was like a group A and a group B and then the finals of the tournament consisted of the winners of each group and they played Kilmarnock from Scotland who would eventually all later on figure into what would happen in the later 1960s. So every year, this tournament sort of grew a little bit bigger, a little bit bigger. I think by 1964, it was on CBS. Um, I know locally or maybe in the metro region, the 1960 finals, I believe, were broadcast. But by the 64, it was getting some exposure on CBS. And then 1960, and I think that year, I want to say they drew over a million people in 1964. And In 1965, they tried to expand it to other cities. They they were looking at Montreal, um, but it had grown, outgrown New York somewhat. And then all of a sudden, um, they were financially insolvent. They, I think they grew a little bit bigger than they had the means for at the time. So that takes us right up almost to 1967. This league sort of faltered in 1965. And the man behind it, as we were talking about, um, William D. Cox, he was not done yet. He decided to speak with other American businessmen, moguls, who in many cases, almost all cases, owned professional football or professional baseball franchises. So they started talking about how can we, Develop uh, a professional top-flight American soccer league, well, and that's sort it. of was yeah. the bridge to it.
0: Yeah. So before we get there, let's uh, there are a couple of things I want to uh, sort of uh, point uh, to in the in the ISL, the International uh, Soccer League. Right. You mentioned Bill Cox, obviously the only, one of the only people still. Uh, obviously, he's been long gone now for some time, but uh, banned from baseball, he was caught basically betting uh, on his Philadelphia Phillies franchise uh, after he had fired his yes. manager. Uh, and the manager then uh, sort of turned around and accused him of, of betting. And and um, that's, uh, you know, but an odd sort of soul to be sort of the, uh, in some respects, patron uh, patron saint of the early days of uh, the reinvention of professional soccer. I, I, I urge our listeners to, if you haven't listened to it, uh, to go to um, and find our episode number six back from April of uh, 2017 with uh, Paul Gardner, uh, who gives us a, a couple of uh, – uh, interesting little anecdotes about uh, about Mr. Cox, about the ISL, about uh, sort of the uh, the early days and sort of the uh, the uniquenesses. Of this. I it's it's my understanding though um, that uh, like, like you sort of hinted at that most of this was largely New York City centric, at least in the first couple of years. Uh, and in particular, the mm, perhaps uh, quickly de- uh, uh, falling apart polo grounds.
1: Yes. Yes, I believe the Polo Grounds was used the first year. I know um, Roosevelt Stadium, uh, and I believe that one is – that's the one on Randall Island, I believe. But, yes, the Polo Grounds, Roosevelt Stadium, the, yeah, it was definitely based in uh, – initially and mostly based in, in New York City. That was, That was where Cox was based. But when the foreign teams would come over – and we'll talk more about this. When the foreign teams would come over, like, for example, AC Milan would come over to New York – in, in that era, even if they weren't playing in the IC, uh, ISL and they would draw, they would draw like 25,000 people. To one of those, uh, to a stadium like that. So New York was still because there were still you know there, there were so many sort of second generation Americans, what they call you know what they were calling them hyphenated Americans, who still were close to the game. And these big internationally known teams were were draws in New York City. They were huge draws. So that was one reason why it was there. And just just to talk about him really quickly, I interviewed a man from my book named uh, Derek Liecti. And he was the general manager of the Oakland slash California Clippers. And he knew Mr. Cox very well. Um, At the time this was going on, he was sort of like one of his, he had very few people helping him run the ISL, but Mr. Lichty was one of them. And even from someone who knew Mr. Cox, he still remains to me a very sort of shadowy ghost-like figure, you know, and one of the things that Mr. Lichty said when I interviewed him and when I I met with him and spoke with him is that he was very much a loner and he was very sort of confrontational. The fact that I think people were telling him you can't own the Phillies just made him push that much harder. And you can't start a league, in a a soccer league in America. That's ridiculous. That'll never work. He pushed and pushed. So he definitely seems like a fascinating man, which I wish I could do more research on. Sorry, I don't want to get too far off track. No, I
0: think it's great. I I agree. And I think uh, with uh, so and there are some interesting little things that are still out there that uh, I you know uh, I don't think have been really discovered. So for example, I was able to in my little research in 1962 at least I saw uh, somebody posted uh, years ago an image uh, from what was apparently the entire tournament uh, being covered on uh, local television in New York, WPIX TV, currently now uh, now owned by Tribune Media. You wonder in the vault mm-hmm. there if uh, some of those games. Uh, are available. You mentioned in 1964, uh, CBS, indeed, broadcast uh, apparently parts uh, or a part of the cup final. And it's my understanding that uh, Jack Whitaker, uh, well-known and legendary broadcaster for CBS Sports over the years, who actually uh, was part of, of the announcing team when we'll talk about in a few year, uh, minutes uh, in the years to come when the leagues were getting started professionally again, uh, and is actually still with us. Mm-hmm. He's actually somebody I'm, I'm trying to pursue uh, for a conversation. I hear he's uh, uh, quite lucid and, and very uh, uh, gregarious in conversation. And, and, you know, talk about, uh, you know, wow. CBS, right? There, they're, you know, CBS was, as we'll talk about, was instrumental in in the early uh, part of, uh, of televising the sport uh, in 67 and 68. But uh, I'll be damned if yep. anybody can find any video from that. Uh, and you got to think people like Jack Whitaker and maybe a few others might have some idea maybe where, a shard or two of that uh, that that video might actually exist.
1: Yeah, that that would be incredible. I I do hope you get to speak with him. Every I feel like I don't know who has it or what, but every now and then I feel like little dribs and drabs of it appear on YouTube, sort of mysteriously. Like you could see a little bit of the 1967 United Soccer Association final match between the uh, the Wolves and the Washington Whips, for example, and there's a tiny, tiny bit of footage of the Oakland Clippers playing the um, Dynamo Kiev, and you know things like that. But the ISL matches, and I, you, know, you had, I appreciate you sending me a link. in, in preparation for this, I had I hadn't seen that before, so that would be fantastic if that stuff would ever come to light, if it you know if it exists.
0: Well, let's get to 1965 because it's kind of a, a crucial sort of setup because um, it also is a bit of a hint too because. Uh, you know, while the financial issues and, you know, obviously Cox was not able to sort of, uh, uh, I guess, continue with this concept, obviously his interest in professional soccer as a thing in the United States uh, was not lost, right? He was still very much interested, but it's also the beginnings of what would become a much more um, pronounced uh, confrontation, shall we say, with this thing called the United States Soccer Football Association, what is now kind of known as the United States Soccer Federation uh, but for those who are sort of uh, uh, uncertain or unknowledgeable about the sport of soccer, it is essentially the uh, United States' uh, official representation of oversight for the, uh, the sport of soccer uh, in relation to the international governing body called FIFA. Um, do you mind me want to yes. talk about a couple of little nits that were starting to uh, begin there as uh, Cox uh, was trying to take this tournament to the next level and and maybe was he, what you call rebuffed by the uh, governing body here in the States?
1: I, I would say rebuffed my yeah that that's a, that you could depict it as that and and again I feel like it just comes down to he was sort of tarred uh, with this um, you know by being banned from baseball I think he was viewed very skeptically and and as I said people that know him said he was sort of you know he was confrontational in some way so I think he was always ready for a battle and what I found underlying everything not well, almost everything in these sort of battles was the rights to have foreign teams come and play in the United States. Because in this era, in this era, excuse me, that was where the money was. That was the draw to have, to be able to host, have Santos come in or, or ACM or whoever it was, that was where money was to be made. And I think that he just did not want to deal with them because essentially what they would do is, and they were a very small organization. And if you look throughout their history, again, that can be a whole other podcast, the leadership has often been characterized as sort of short-sighted and poor from this organization. And you can trace back at parts, parts in their history and sort of see these patterns of poor decision making and, I mean, frankly, incompetence. And I think what was probably going on is that they wanted more and they wanted probably more and more a percentage of the gate or sort of um, I'm trying to think of what you would term the fee to let Cox keep bringing these teams over They Basically for FIFA to be okay with it, they would have to lend their you know, they would have to lend their emblem to it. And I think he and they probably just got tired of dealing with each, dealing with each other. And he, you know, there, I'm sure money was involved there. So I think he was probably trying to circumvent them at his earliest possible um You know, at at every sort of juncture to probably try and get around them. And that's the other thing, too, that you'll see running through this story. Uh, Okay, so we have this we have this we have this body that runs soccer in the United States, ostensibly, but it reports to FIFA. And then as we'll see a little bit later on in this story, all these powerful men who own NFL teams and, and Major League Baseball teams, the fact that they couldn't just do whatever it is that they wanted to do. And, but they had you know the fact that they couldn't do that that they had to run it first by some international organization that was something that hardly any of them had ever experienced before so it was it was a different sort of bureaucracy uh on many levels that was at play here
0: all right let's uh let's forward to 66 right because that seems to be where a lot of the action sort of occurred so so cox is uh, while he's uh suing the uh United States Soccer uh Football Association uh, for antitrust which apparently he ultimately won but it was too late to sort of save the isl uh, from continuing its own thing mm-hmm. he was well on his way to working on figuring out a well a more professional league approach uh for the united states yes. he and his uh his colleague also another sort of unsung uh early uh, uh supporter of the sport in this country bob herman uh announced teams yes. a league but uh in may of 1966 but uh You wonder, if surprised, uh, they were uh, not the only ones with the same idea, were they?
1: They were not. They were not. There was a competing sort of, well, that's the other thing. I I, I would love to have been able to interview someone that was at this meeting. But apparently all these powerful men sat down, with, and they were all on the same page at one point in time. And uh, the Bidwell family, who owned the... um, Arizona and St. Louis Cardinals. they were they were in, in, in the picture and the, the Allens who had owned the Chicago White Sox and even the Roonies who owned the Steelers and, and people who eventually stayed in the story like Lamar Hunt who owned the Kansas City Chiefs and Jack Kent Cook. These people ended up staying within this narrative but all these powerful men sat down with Cox and with Herman and I think they were all on the same page initially but I don't know it, it's not clear whether it's ego or difference of opinion but these sort of groups splinter and one of them Cox and Herman sort of end up on one side and Jack Kent Cook and Lamar Hunt and these people end up on the other side and you're right this this meeting you can trace this back to May of 1966 and that was one of the other things that I found in my book and within doing research is everyone points to the World Cup final in 1966 as being the thing that sprung all of this into motion but as you can see it's documented it was in motion before that happened the fact that that happened and drew such a great rating on NBC in the United States that was all that just added fuel to a fire that was already sort of smoldering. and that was one I feel like sort of preconception that I hope that anyone who reads my book understands that that's you know that, that's not really the whole story that's sort of like just taken as a fact that, oh, yeah, the World Cup final in 1966, that made these guys jump in action. They were already eyeing the sport before then.
0: Yeah, so that, what happens is... That, that is interesting because they, that, that that final was broadcast on uh, on NBC, and Jim Simpson, another sort of legendary, uh, mostly pro football uh, announcer, was uh, the guy who who basically voiced that, and apparently quite well, based on the research that I was able to tell. And it was a, basically the entire game, but it was a, a couple of hours delayed uh, obviously uh, mm-hmm. uh, the most well attended uh and successful um, World Cup until 1994 and in, in England but but you're right and I guess my mm-hmm. question is before you even go further is um from what you can determine why do you think I mean was it was it a an understanding that this thing would be big uh and make a make a a, a, a powerful sort of televised sort of statement in in the later part of the year, or were there other things in motion to, I mean, look, in essence, I think it's important to remember if you you're going from zero or maybe half of a professional organization of soccer that is the American Soccer League, which has had its own sort of tortured or torturous history in terms of amateurism versus professionalism and uh, ethnicities mm-hmm. and all those kinds of things. but you know the 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 governing body in the United States was like, I think only two people as a professional office, right? And all of a sudden, you have three competing groups of very rich and successful uh, 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 business folk in the United States circling around this sport that arguably was uh, more of an ethnic curiosity until that time professionally. I'm just wondering what prior to the World Cup was putting all this stuff so dramatically in motion in your mind?
1: Well, from what I can tell, I think two things. Um, as I mentioned a few different times, uh, as far back as, from what I can tell, as far back as 1948, big time club teams were started touring the United States and were always successful. Liverpool did a tour in 1948. And I think that's probably the first one we'll say of the post-war era that really drew well. And then every year, more and more teams would come over and play matches that drew incredibly well so they had it right in front of them okay people will pay to see this we know that and we also know from being you know international businessmen that wherever we go outside of this country this game is massive people love it people will line up around the block to come in a stadium and watch this so we know something's here we know how to market things this is just another thing so as soon as we get it running boom, it's going to be just like basketball or hockey or whatever, sort of like the next sort of on the second tier of American sport. And that was the other thing they had just in the sixties at this time, they were just expanding the uh, major league baseball to the West coast. They had just got the Los Angeles Lakers, you know, for the national basketball association, there was expansion in the national hockey league. So they were basically sort of maxed out. they had r- run out of, co- uh, you know, uh, literally run out of, you know, landmass in America and run out of sports, but you know, cable TV was starting to be a big, you know, big uh, revenue stream. So they they wanted to keep adding to that revenue stream and keep tapping into it. So the soccer was just the next logical thing. And I think they all, that was, that was, that was what was behind it. Like we can plug this in and make more money and then we'll worry about what's next after we get this, you know, after we get this going, I really think there was some of that in there. They knew it, well, they knew it was big, And that's all they that's all they knew. And they and I feel I feel like they figured, hey, we know how to do this. We know how to market things. We know how to get people to come to things. So once we apply that knowledge to what's something that's already big, you know, we'll just snap our fingers and go to the bank.
0: Yeah, and um, that's a theme that uh, Paul Gardner uh, returned to on a a number of occasions. And, And I think it's actually something that has bedeviled the sport even to this day in the United States is the quote unquote business people. Versus the quote-unquote soccer people. Uh, frankly, the most uh, visceral yes. expression of that right now, uh, as we record this in late January of 2018, uh, the battle for who will be the uh, the next uh, president and overseer of the United States Soccer Federation (U.S. Soccer), and um, and it is very much what is it about money, and is it about uh, uh, you know, and or is it about the quality and the sanctity of the sport, uh, and how those sort of uh, mutually sort of coexist, but. Um, you know, as we segue, so 1966, right, so that, that final uh, surprises, I think, a lot of people, certainly in the television world, it certainly adds that fuel mm-hmm. to the fire and bolts, bolsters what these uh, three now groups of, of businessmen sort of recognize is, is perhaps lightning in a bottle. Um, maybe you can sort of yep. walk through the latter part of 66 and early 67 uh, because clearly three professional leagues when there really weren't any the year before – uh, doesn't seem like something that's going to immediately fly uh, here in this country, despite the best intentions of, of many successful businessmen.
1: No, you're right. And and just two quick number data points here from from what I from what I was able to uncover in my research. Uh, the United States Soccer Federation, uh, like you, you had mentioned, they had I think it was two or three people on staff. I've I've heard both. But their operating budget at that time, the entire organizations was seventy five thousand dollars around this era. So we' we'll, and we'll start talking about money soon, probably, or you know but that so that that just gives you a sense of how small this organization was. And then the figure I got from the world cup ratings uh, on MBC, the, the um, 1966 world cup final ratings were that they had around 10 million viewers. So a- as we talked about this, this thing was already in motion, but once I think once that figure came out, these men really sort of hit the accelerator and said, all right, we're going to go, we're going to do this. And this is going to be big. We'll figure out the specifics later. Because that's the one thing, as I I would mention, like, and and I touched on it earlier, Cox actually apparently was a fan of the game. He at least understood it a little bit. Whereas I don't think many, if any of these other men, and you'll see by some of their decision making later, understood the game at all. They just, it was just something that they were going to market, and that's what they knew how to do, and they were going to do it, and then boom. So as 66 winds down, the groups are pretty much the third group I I did as much research as I could on, and they remain sort of, they kind of are lost to history. There's a couple different theories of of who that, that group might've been, but it really solidifies into, into two groups, the one led by Cox and Herman, uh, which eventually would become the national professional soccer league and PSL. And then Lamar Hunt, Jack Kent cook and others who would become United soccer association. But at that time they were known as the North American soccer league, the NASL, which would later on, uh, and you know, once these leagues merged, eventually, you know, the NS, the NASL would live on to 1984. So these two entrenched groups are there. And as I just mentioned, this very small, tiny cash starved organization, the United States soccer, uh, United States soccer, Football Association, um, they basically, and as you had mentioned, I think you had mentioned or you had sent to me in our, in our email communication, at this time, feet he was headed by a man named Rouse, and he had gotten wind of this, and he basically was like, "You in so many words, like, you guys are crazy. There's no way you can... Chances are you probably can't even make one domestic league float right now. There's no way on God's green earth you can make two. So figure something out, have one league, we'll support you, give it a try. So that, that, that advice was ignored. And what the United States uh, Federation did was to step in and say, all right, submit a bid and we'll go with submit a bid and tell us how you can market the sport, and you know there's a basically like a buy-in fee, and we'll we'll give you the you know we'll give the winner the the right to do this, and that bid was awarded to the North American Soccer League, soon to become the United Soccer Association, and people. You know, there's, there's evidence that ports to that there might've been a little bit of under the table stuff going on there because people associated with the United States, um, soccer football association were, you know, all of a sudden had different jobs within this new league and things like that. So, you know, and the other league cried foul and said, you know, that this isn't fair, the group with Cox and Herman, they were eventually not given the bid for legitimacy. And that really set the stage for sort of an acrimonious, um, battle, w- which it was. And then the Trump card was that the, they then went and got a television contract. And I think it was right around the November of 1966. Uh, they were able to sort of one up, uh, the N- the NASL, Um, The NASL was basically given a sanction to operate as the, you know, sanctioned professional soccer league in the United States, beginning in 1968, actually, initially. But the NPSL was then able to go to CBS and get a television contract to start in the spring of 1967. So there we have two leagues there, you know, uh, that should have been a whole, but we have one that's sanctioned, one that's not sanctioned and labeled rogue, a word that comes up in this, narrative throughout the United States soccer history, but they're the ones that people can turn on their televisions and and see. So when I discovered that fact initially too, I was almost more blown away than I was to find out that Gordon Banks was playing in Municipal Bank Stadium in Cleveland in 1967. I mean, there's just so many parts of this story that are just so bizarre and hard to believe.
0: Well, it's it's interesting. It it seems to me almost that because Cox understood from his years of running and, and, and importing uh, full-fledged international soccer teams and in, and in, in the tournament that he ran in, in the ISL, it almost feels like he had a little bit of a, an edge in terms of at least understanding uh, some of the issues and the intricacies of the sport. Um, you know, So in essence, what you're describing, I, I think it's actually important to actually step back for a second because uh, however the United States Soccer Football Association uh, got hip, they certainly did actually having gone from you know, uh, uh, that sort of small, paltry operating budget. I mean, I think it's important to remember that the American Soccer League, again, that sort of uh, quasi-professional and, and, and long-standing league in uh, in this country was essentially the only professional kind of uh, expression in the United States. Uh, they were only paying $25, mm-hmm. right? Not 1000 but 25 bucks a year for its official yes. sanction as being the pro league in the United States. And then, you know, in 1960, yes, that's because of all this interest, the... Federation basically said, "Okay, we, there are, there's opportunity here. Of, of all these entities and all these very rich and powerful businessmen are coming to us, um, it's my understanding that they basically put some contractual things on the table in order to win or to award that that uh, that official sanction, including uh, uh, wanting four percent of the gate receipts of all the games, ten uh, percent of all the television yeah. money, and a, a franchise fee. I think it was around twenty-five k per for each team." and i think the the reaction was cox and his group kind of balked at it right but the uh, they did they right they but did. jackie Cook's group kind of said all right well if that's what it's going to take um, you know this it's a small price to pay and then you know it seems like that cox and his group kind of countered with all right well you're going to announce for 68 let's we'll have our television deal and we're going to start in 67 so it seems very tit for tat um and it's it's just it, it, interesting it, how all these things come together and sort of make this story in, incredible as it might be where two professional leagues are going to p- compete with each other uh, it's 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 hard to believe isn't it
1: it it is hard to believe and you're exactly right like and, and you had mentioned about the ASL fee of being $25 a year and then now all of a sudden you're talking about $250,000 because when it was all said and done what you just said was exactly right there's like a base fee for a franchise and then this all these other things that it was roughly around $250,000 each of these men had to pay to Oh wait, excuse me. That was the wrong fee. I'm sorry. I'm trying to have the exact numbers in front of me. That was the that was the fee to import the actual teams, which we'll get to in a moment. But yes, it was. It went up. The money went up exponentially. It went from twenty five dollars to to license ASL games to twenty five thousand dollars plus five percent of television revenue and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you're right. And the men of the NPSL balked at that and said, "No way. We're not going to do that." So it was easy to award the sanction to the other the other group. And then also you're right that they knew that they you know, they could trump them with two ways. Number one, the television was the big trump card. And from what I understood, uh, from what I've been able to uncover, the NASL slash USA were offered a similar contract from CBS, but CBS had language in it that they can only, they would only do one match a week and it was on their terms or this or that. And the United, it was probably sour grapes, but United Soccer Association men were on record later saying, oh, that 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 TV contract is, is garbage and we're, we're going to get rid of that. We didn't want it. We turned it down. But meanwhile, they were all seething inside. I mean, it was actually very well played. You're right. It was tit for tat, chess, however way you want to say it. But the NPSL not only did it get the contract, but it said, well, right, yeah, we're going to be ready to play in the spring. And then those men went out and started actually putting teams together. So then all of a sudden, the United Soccer Association and the NASL, they they, they hadn't planned to start to, until 1968, so they had no teams. They had no anything. So then they had to decide, okay, we can't let this other team we, – obviously, we can't let this other league start play a year ahead of us and be on TV. There, there's, we'll be dead in the water. So that was the idea then, which was kind of like Cox's idea. We'll, all right, we'll just bring a foreign team over, but we'll slap a local name on them. And that was the other fascinating part. And that's like one of the things that I talk about a lot in my book is just sort of this weird play of identity. The fact that the Washington Whips were actually the Aberdeen Dons, you know, like that, that whole kind of thing is so weird. And there was there is evidence that they tried to match these teams ethnically by city. Like uh, Boston got the team from Ireland. They, you know, they got the Shamrock Rovers and because there were so many Italian-Americans in, in Chicago. They got Cagliari Calcio, you know, and so on and so forth. Some of the connections aren't really easy to discern, but some were, and like they were actually thinking about that. So that adds another level of sort of how does identity play into this? And it's, yeah, but you're right. It was It was a very brilliant move to get the television contract first.
0: All right, just when it was getting interesting, let's, uh, let's bring this uh, to a grinding halt, shall we? Ah, just kidding. Uh, we got to pay the bills around here, and uh, our friends at Audible have been very helpful in attempting to allow us to pay some of those bills, and uh, we want to call them out now uh, and remind you that uh, a free audiobook download is yours for the taking and also a free one-month uh, subscription to the service uh, of Audible at audibletrial.com goodseats. Again, audibletrial.com goodseats for your free 1 month trial of the Audible service and interestingly most interestingly a free audiobook download for you to enjoy 180,000 titles and growing uh, every day to choose from and there's uh, absolutely no excuse to not find at least one title amongst that uh, cavernous uh, selection uh, available to you that uh, you won't find to be enjoyable and uh, and good for the soul including uh, a couple of books that might be interesting to our audience and yes some new ones frankly uh, that I'm finally listening to. One that I'm listening to right now uh, is by Carson Cunningham. It's narrated by Paul Bamer, and it's called Underbelly Hoops, Adventures in the CBA, aka the Crazy Basketball Association, which is really, of course, about uh, the Continental Basketball Association, which for many years uh, was sort of this ragtag minor league uh, of the NBA. And that's uh, it's a book I'm about two chapters into right now and uh, hopefully maybe a guest will get uh for a future episode also uh in my queue next up uh is another guest that I'd like to get uh and her book that she wrote is also uh narrated by her her name is Jeannie Buss and of course Jeannie is the daughter of Jerry Buss of course the uh wildly successful founder of the Los Angeles Lakers and the LA Forum and Jeannie is as uh, clearly today the brains behind uh, the Los Angeles Lakers today she and her brothers were uh, active, of course, in things like, along with her father, uh, World Team Tennis, uh, the major indoor soccer league with the LA Lasers, all kinds of stuff. So uh, her book is next on my list. That's called Laker Girl. And that, too, is available on Audible. And again, it's one of the, uh, the many thousands of titles that you can choose from uh, when you go to audibletrial.com goodseats. And again, you, too, can get your free audiobook download to give it a try, perhaps one of those two, or perhaps one of the other 180,000 titles. Uh, available to you as well Uh, give it a try audibletrial.com slash good seats thanks for listening and back to our conversation Well, so uh, when the dust settles, uh, we're looking at early 1967 for uh, admittedly rushed launches of these two competing entities. One now called the NPSL with a contract in hand, but but labeled as rogue by FIFA and the U.S. Uh, Federation. Yes. And the United and the newly renamed uh, United Soccer Association, which um, you know uh, has the official uh, charter from FIFA and and the Federation in the united states uh mm-hmm. yet has um now had their uh, their timetable been mo- uh, moved up for by a year so maybe you can describe sort of the frenetic uh moments of trying to get two professional leagues off the ground in 1967 from a i guess a very cold and and uh uh minimal start uh maybe you can sort of walk our audience through sort of those those uh those weeks and months and and perhaps how they initially came to market with their first games in 1967.
1: Uh, yeah, and, and again, you, you, you'll you see, too, the evidence that the, the, the FIFA sanction was important for many reasons, but it was mostly important to be able to bring in other international teams because one of the first things that the United Soccer Association did with their sanction was to arrange uh, a series of uh, like four or five exhibition matches to get people in their biggest cities excited about this new league that was going to play there. So for example, Liverpool played in Los Angeles, Real Madrid played West Ham United in the Astrodome. Um, Athletic Bilbao played Red Star Belgrade in Comiskey Park. So that right away, that was a revenue stream that they were going to hit right away and they did, which shows its importance. Um, So what happened in October, once the the uh, late October, early November, once the NPSL was awarded the television contract, all of those people went into overdrive assembling actual teams, and they were a mix of sort of probably semi-pros, um, pros from Europe who you know were probably at the end of their careers, um, pro- players from under-scouted at that time areas like you know uh, Central America, the, uh, the islands places like that, probably the, the Baltimore bays, since I had access to the Baltimore suns archive and I use them as the examples, uh, sort of, I use them to sort of tell the story of the NPSL in my book. You can see the sort of painstaking work that uh, Gordon Diego and people like this, into finding players. They were finding players all over the world. They were able to find players from Israel. They were able to find players from uh, Jamaica. You know, I mean, they really set about building teams. It was really interesting. Uh, The United States Soccer Association, it was nothing I could imagine. I mean, it was basically just cold panic. Like, what are we going to do? There's no way we're going to be able to put teams together. Even though these other these other the, the the men on the other side were able to do a f- half decent job of cobbling these teams together um the united states soccer association just said all right well you know what we'll just import teams uh to sort of get our get you know we'll import teams we'll have them play under the the franchise names that we're going to trot out there and then we'll build the teams behind the scenes while these teams play for this first summer so there was definitely some panic but once they figured that out I think they probably felt like pretty assured, you know, that it was going to work out. You know, they, they got some pretty good teams. They got a bunch of teams from England. They got Sunderland. They got Stoke. They got wolves. They got a bunch of teams from Scotland. Scotland's league at that point in time was really powerful. Uh, As a matter of fact, Celtic had just won the, they were the first team from the UK to win the, uh, the European championship. Now the champions league trophy, which, when I discovered that, I I was amazed. I had no idea they were the first team to win it. They had, you know, from the from the, United Kingdom, they had won it before Manchester United or anybody else. So they, they picked two or three different teams from that league, like Aberdeen and Hibernian. So these teams were playing, they were sparring with European champions. So, I mean, you know, these, these are some, you know, pretty well-known teams. And then they got teams from South America. So I think there was definitely some panic uh, until they figured out you know, who they could get, when, and the logistics and all that stuff. So I'm sure it was a white-hot race to the finish for those guys, whereas the other people seemed to be a little bit more business-like, the NPSL. They were really better at, like, okay, let's build this from the ground up. And, and in, a, in a way, they seem to have a little bit more of the bigger picture in mind. And I feel like fate just sort of threw this curveball at the United Soccer Association, and they were lucky enough to get – the teams that they were able to get to come over and then play the schedule.
0: Do you think? Do you think the NPSL had had uh, was hampered by the fact that they were essentially a rogue league? Um, I mean, obviously they were sort of uh, you know uh, stymied by the fact that they didn't have that, but obviously that has an implication, especially for folks who don't understand sort of world soccer, right? Because by being brandished now an outlaw league uh, that actually can very serious very seriously prevent uh, perhaps quality players from joining that league for fear of being blackballed. Uh, in their desire to go to other leagues and other teams uh, worldwide under FIFA control. Um, it seems like they yes. settled for younger, unproven players and maybe older players who didn't have much sort of transfer value going forward. But uh, you got to think it did stymie a bit of, of at least getting some quality players in the MPSL so quickly.
1: Oh, it definitely did. That, that's a great point. It definitely did. There was, uh, I found a, I found a UPI article quoting the uh one of the heads of the um football association in England threatening players not to play for the rogue you know not to play that there'd be punitive actions taken if, if people went actually went over and played. So Phil Woosnam talked about that actually. Um he was sort of at the end of his career, so I don't think he cared. Uh but yeah, it that's it definitely impacted players from England for sure, 'cause they were they were sort of given some chin music, like right off the bat, like don't do this or you'll you'll be punished. So the only people willing to sort of try their luck, I think, were people who probably didn't have much of a future there anyway, that were sort of marginal talents, or people like Wusnam that had played already for Aston Villa and all of these teams and were sort of at the end of their careers. So, yeah, that's, that's definitely a great point. And when you look at the rosters of some of these NPSL teams, a lot of them are like you know um, players from the developing world, who, who, you know, I don't, I don't know what the scouting pipelines were at that time from some of the bigger European clubs, but it seemed like not only were they from the developing world, but they were from places that really weren't, you know, talent, you know, pipe, they weren't established um, pipelines for talent at the time. And then there were men from like South America or, you know, elsewhere in Europe who were sort of at the end of their careers and they've, you know, they just wanted to keep playing and they had nothing to lose. And they weren't worried about, you know, being labeled rogue, but that definitely figured into it for sure.
0: But the MPSL was the first one really to come out of the gates, right? They, their their season started in um, uh, in April of '67. Uh, obviously, the first uh, televised yes. podcast uh, on CBS nationwide. Uh, maybe you want to give mm-hmm. uh, our audience a bit of uh, a sense of how how the MPSL sort of came onto the scene and and what their initial few weeks and months were before the USA even got their uh, their chance to debut.
1: Yeah, sure. their Their first match was I want to see, I don't have it right in front of me. I want to say it was, it was definitely early April. I want to say like around April seventh, yeah, somewhere around uh, there.
0: April sixteenth, nineteen sixty seven. The Atlanta Chiefs and the Baltimore Bays in Baltimore at uh, yeah. the old Memorial Stadium. It,
1: yes, it was at the old Memorial Stadium, and it was it was a huge production. Apparently, they had uh, they had the the most state of the art uh, television production, and that was interesting. I found material that basically CBS wanted to Americanize the product as much as they could. So they had, they were going to show it from different angles and they were going to, sh- you know, there was going to be more, you know, more breaks in the action so they can jam in commercials, you know, but they were, you know, and we'll probably talk about that. They they had, they had a way that they were going to sort of insert uh, more breaks into the play, but apparently the production was state of the art. And I want to say that match ended one nil, I believe. Um, to the Bays, let me, again, I don't have that's that crazy. in front of me, but they... Uh,
0: yep, Baltimore won it, yep.
1: Yep, that's that's we yeah. And I guess it got decent ratings, but CBS's thing was, and I, and I think this is one of the things that uh, the the United Soccer Association folks balked at, they, they I guess they wanted maybe two games a week or whatever, but CBS was only willing to give one game a week, and it was sort of like a showcase. So then um, one of the next games uh, featured... Uh, this, I don't know if you want me to jump ahead to that, but one of the next games really featured something in a, in a way nefarious, uh, as I'd mentioned, they, they, there's, there's newspaper clippings and research that I've encountered that CBS really sort of wanted to make this product as palatable as possible for Americans. So we, you know, we had state of the art television setups in, 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 um, in they miss in, in the stadium and there were going to be ways that they can have the referees sort of slow play down so that they can add in commercials. Cause people don't know things like the, the two minute warning in the NFL and the national football league that was inserted just to have commercials. It, it, it's, it was never a, a feature of the game. It's not a necessary feature of the game. So keep with that in mind, they were trying to find ways for the referees to sort of add unnatural stoppages to, to, um, to the flow of a soccer match, which we all know it just plays continuously. So one of the things that they would do is they would, they literally had the referees wired up with these sort of like electronic boxes and they would get signals from the production booth. I mean, the production booth was really calling the shots, uh, above all else, above the managers, above the referees. And they would sort of send the referees like a little message uh, saying, okay, let's have a how about a stoppage here? And a referee then might blow a whistle. If someone like, you know, someone got tackled, and they were a little bit slow to get up, they might blow a whistle and then they would you know, try and slide in a commercial. And this really sort of got, this really got scary. It was either the second or third broadcast. So there were, the United, the United Soccer Association started on April 28th, so it wasn't like they had very much window to just sort of stake their claim. They probably had two or three nationally televised matches at most before their competition started. But their competition you weren't going to see unless you were in that city and you can pay um, uh, to go see a ticket, or excuse me, to pay for a ticket. So they only had a very short window. So they had that match. And then they had what a match between Toronto and I believe um, the Pittsburgh franchise, and there was a referee in that match named Peter Rhodes who was trying to add in the sort of artificial breaks, and he admitted afterwards that this was the setup, and other people had have admitted this too, but then the league came out right away and sort of said no, that's not true, and it became this big controversy. Um, it became like this really strange event in a series and a summer full of strange events. So I don't think that they had a really, I don't think they had a, a massive window to, to go back to the original question to sort of show off their product before their competitors started. But apparently they, you know, the broadcast was the best you could do at the time. But I think, again, this shows that the men behind it didn't know as much about soccer as they maybe could have or should have. Because I don't think they were—I think they were trying to sort of alter it in certain ways that didn't work.
0: Yeah. So the uh, the, the the note on Peter Rhodes uh, and, and that it does come out in I think a year later uh, in some articles. In particular, I think there was an article in '68 at uh, in Sports Illustrated penned by uh, the color commentator for those CBS broadcasts, Jack Whitaker, doing the play-by-play, but a uh, former player from Northern Ireland named Danny Blanchflower, uh, who. Uh, uh according to all evidence that i've seen was uh shall we say not shy about uh his uh calling it like he saw the quality of play that is not so high quality of play uh on those broadcasts That's correct. it it doesn't seem like cbs appreciated uh his uh shall we say more than honest uh commentary but uh, you know uh he, the quality of play was you know as as any early stage league with a a a quick uh, assemblage of players that have never played with each other before was not all that Mm -hmm. great, was it?
1: No, it it wasn't, but it was, it's, it's funny that you say that because I mean, it wasn't, you weren't going to see West Ham, you know, United or flowing, you know, Real Madrid attacking football. But statistically there's this incredible book. It's out of print now called the Encyclopedia of American soccer. And it was published in 1980 and I was able to track a copy down while doing a uh, doing the research for my book, the scoring on average that year in in terms of like total goals and things like that was on par with the English first division and the German first division. So it it was, it wasn't the same quality, but it's not like it was just all boredom. I mean, there were some talented players scattered throughout this league. And that's the other thing that that's so fascinating about it. Like for example, Dennis uh Violette, who was one of the Busby babes, uh he was a Manchester United legend. He played for the Baltimore Bays. Uh there was um a legend from Barcelona, uh Ladislao. Um I'm not gonna totally butcher his last name, but he played for um he played for the the Toronto franchise. I mean it's it just there were there were gems sort of nestled in Um, established gems sort of nestled in the NPSL as well as people like uh, Kaiser Moatang, who would become well-known figures and, you know, well-known figures throughout the game. So it was, it really was a very strange mixed bag. I mean, it's, I I wouldn't call it awful, but it it definitely wasn't, you know, your top notch first division football like in Europe, but there was more, it had more to offer than I think people initially thought.
0: Well there's no doubt too that uh, a number of those players from uh, from that initial assemblage uh wound up staying in the United States and becoming very seminal in the uh, further growth of the sport uh in all its ups and downs mm-hmm. Phil woosnam before uh, ron Newman uh you know who's a legendary uh not only player but coach and administrator uh who was playing with for atlanta gabo gaverich uh elijah Middich uh, in yes. uh, in oakland uh, walt Chisowitz, uh you know willie roy pat mm-hmm. McBride. i mean you you have plenty of uh, folks that uh would later go on to sort of uh keep this sport alive and then take it sort of to the next level but i i can't imagine though that uh the controversies um that blanche, blanche flower in the later years would sort of kind of uh even bring more to the fore uh the m p s l not necessarily uh getting off to a a, a, a tremendous start when uh, refereeing was questioned, shall we say, or or some of the production shenanigans, right? It's kind of a it's, you say it's a mixed yeah. bag, right? I mean, the fact that CBS right nationally broadcasting games, I mean, that's like gold, right, to any fledgling professional league mm-hmm. both then and now. Yet, uh, mm-hmm. you can feel, uh, and depending on your perspective, the artificiality, maybe because of the conventions of television, or perhaps because of the ignorance of businessmen and or tv producers who didn't understand and or appreciate the sport uh that you Mm know kind of you know for every step forward there's a step back and you know when you're trying to nurture something that's relatively new to the american populace uh these sort of hints of negativity uh probably didn't uh didn't help the process and i guess by extension the usa uh when they started a few weeks later uh as well but uh, maybe you can kind of get into the usa and its start uh, in the midst of and despite the NPSL's uh, interesting stumbles in the beginning, well,
1: and yeah, well, it's interesting you say that because I was just sort of defending the NPSL, but it's like no matter how talented the people were, they still had to cohere as 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 a team. You know, they had a very brief sort of window for training, so there were definitely going to be some growing pains. And you know, that that first match, you know, I did as much research as I could on that from the Baltimore Sun and anywhere else I could. I mean, it was kind of the the very first match that they put on TV that we just talked about those one knows kind of known as like a really sort of boring match, but that was like the, one of the weirdest like sort of ironies of this is that the, the fully formed teams that were in fighting fit were teams that you were not going to be able to see on TV. <laughs> like you couldn't see Uh, Teams from Scotland who were sparring with the world, you know, the the European champion Celtic, like you weren't going to be able to see teams from, from Italy. Uh, Cagliari, they've only won the Scudetto one time and it was, they they brought this team over in 67. They won it in 1970. So, I mean, that's what was just so, so crazy about it is if you're trying to get viewers, you're sort of showing um, you're, you're stuck with, with the MPSL how it turned out. Sort of an unfinished product a product that was sort of emerging you know maybe not the best quality of play while these people figured out how to play with each other whereas here you have teams that just finished their domestic campaign in the united soccer association and that are very fit very cohesive very ready to play and they're the teams that you know are not on the air so it, it, again it's just one of the things that happened throughout this time it's just like wow how did this happen why did it it's it just it's so strange but the united soccer association started around April 28th and they had good crowds all around and they had, they had a massive crowd in the Astrodome to watch the uh, Houston stars, uh, great crowds all around. Um, they would, uh, they would ultimately fizzle a little bit when the novelty wore off, but I feel like I would say they had a better start. And one of the interesting things about the United soccer association is that since they weren't on television, newspaper coverage in each city became paramount to sell tickets. I mean, newspaper coverage at that point in time in the late sixties was still basically the only game in town anyway. I mean, it was going to drive tickets whether television existed in a market or not, but it was absolutely paramount to help the United Soccer Association draw in the cities in which it was in. And I found a couple of different things. It was always painted, the the coverage of these teams in, uh, throughout either city was always sort of painted in this really weird, negative, sort of sinister light. Like soccer to a conservative sports writer, soccer was just this alien, really bizarre thing. And their language really bore, bore that out. And the other thing that would happen is since this was such a new thing. And it was something I think editors and newsrooms were were saying, no one's going to care about this anyway. So they were putting their youngest, most inexperienced reporters on the United Soccer Association's case for sure. But you see it in both leagues, but the United Soccer Association, that was a bigger deal. And it's hilarious because these men eventually became like big deals. Like Andrew Bayer, for example, covered the Washington whips for the Washington post. And he was like 25 years old. He became like the, one of the foremost uh, journalists covering horse racing in the United States and still is, but it it was just hilarious seeing him sort of at the beginning of his career, just kind of low person on the totem pole assigned this, you know, I guess probably at the time, not an enviable job of telling the world about the Washington whips. And you see this sort of pattern play out in every city, but Initially, I think they were, they were placed really well, the teams and the cities, and people were excited for for at least a couple of weeks. And then I think the novelty wore off. Sadly, again at the same time, where the quality of play in that league was like really heating up and really you know nice, something that you know comparable to what you would see in Europe or, or South America.
0: It's it's interesting too. Did you uh, I don't know how much you got a sense of this. Um... You know the the two leagues, right? Uh, there were four cities, uh, and actually, if you include metropolitan areas, six metropolitan areas uh, that actually had mm-hmm. uh, a team in each of the leagues, right? So Toronto, New York, L.A., and Chicago had teams in both leagues, and then by extension, mm-hmm. the Baltimore-Washington area had a team in each uh, in each league, as did uh, the Bay Area, one in San Francisco and one in Oakland. Were you able to determine? And you may have written about this, and I may have just missed it. uh, You know, who might have? Was there a pattern to who was of those competing in those competing markets? Who might have done better or fared better at the gate and or in the uh, perception of the press that year?
1: Um, I think I think definitely in terms of uh, in the Bay Area, um, the San Francisco Golden Gales were a team from. From um, the Netherlands, Ado Den Haag, and they were at the time. They're pretty obscure now. They might even be in the second division, I believe. But they were very good at the time, so they were really they were a good team. But the Oakland Clippers, um, they were. I have a whole chapter in my book about them. I mean, they were they were really an interesting bunch of individuals. And their coach was this incredibly colorful man. He challenged I think this is the only time that this happened. He challenged uh the San Francisco Golden Gales in the newspapers to play a match. And uh so I, I think the Clippers definitely did better box office wise in that market and they had better success on the field because then they won the they won the inaugural and only. NPSL championship so I think that's one market where you can say there was sort of a clear-cut victor I think the um, it's interesting uh, the market that I'm in right now the DC metropolitan area the bays and the whips were both very successful Um, I want to say probably very close to even in terms of attendance there might have been a slight edge on the Washington whips um, on their side but both teams ended up losing their respective championships games. So it was kind of a stalemate in terms of on field success. But I, I, my impression is the whips might've drew just a tad bit more. The New York teams, it's really hard to tell. I don't think either of them drew very well. Um, and Chicago, I think after a strong start, same thing, but I, I, for some reason, I think the Mustangs probably because of quality of play, uh, they they were again they were the team from the Serie A Cagliari, they I would say they probably had a slight edge in terms they definitely had a they definitely had a huge edge in quality and I think they eventually had a slight edge in attendance, but attendance in Chicago overall that season was poor. The Chicago Wolves they um they were eventually became the Kansas City Wolves so they, they weren't long for this world so I definitely think the Mustangs had more more to offer and drew more than they did in terms of um. Yeah, the, the tally, in terms of the cities.
0: Yeah, the tally at the end of the season, though, right? So, um, I, I don't think we kind of mentioned this, but I um, and I'm not sure which league or if it was sort of a, an amalgam of both of the leagues, but uh, there was a number that I had sort of found out there that uh, going into 67, the sort of a, a break-even attendance number was estimated to be around 12,000, and the NPSL, uh, by comparison, uh, I mean neither league was you know amazingly attended. You mentioned a couple of. Uh, of sort of the initial ones and some of the initial uh, frenzy in the beginning and stuff with some some really some si- sizable crowds, but when when all the dust settled yeah. at the end of the season, right, the NPSL uh, was below five thousand. I think it was like forty eight seventy nine was their league average, right, four thousand eight hundred seventy nine mm-hmm. per game. And the USA was uh, closer to eight thousand a game, right, seventy eight ninety I think was the number. Houston had I think yes. like nineteen thousand, almost twenty thousand on average, which was tremendous so just by that that metric alone the USA would seem to have had uh, perceived a better season arguably better play right because these were whole cloth teams uh, it's also was a shorter season uh, so that maybe factored a bit more scarcity and a bit more um, maybe intrigue for each game versus a longer season. Um, but it's interesting too. It seems like both playoffs uh, for each of the leagues were quite uh, quite interesting and quite exciting. There is some video out there of the uh, 1967 uh, USA final uh, between the Wolves yes. and, and Washington uh, that is narrated by uh, LA's own Chick Hearn. Uh, it, it's it's oh, I, don't wow. think it, I don't think it's actually uh, the game uh, like a, a broadcast, but it uh, it's sort of a, a recreation or. Uh, of such almost like a a film highlight thing but it's it's tremendous out there definitely find it on YouTube um but it it it's it's really yes. well done you can see the, that the real energy there in the stadium in the, the LA Memorial Coliseum only 17,000 or so there but but wow it was fun it was a 6-5 overtime game and um you know I, it doesn't seem to me that uh, some of these games were not exciting uh, and uh, that there was some real um you know, some real energy on the field uh, across both of these leagues in 1967.
1: Oh, there, there definitely was. I mean, I, I spent a long time just pouring through sort of at the real nitty gritty of writing this. I spent a long time pouring through like match recaps and match, you know, previews and things like that. And then, there were really, there were high points on the field, no doubt about it. I would say there were probably more in the United Soccer Association just because of like, you know, like we've been talking about coherent, you know, cohesive teams, but by the time the uh, the NPSL was winding down, there were probably five or six teams there that were also playing really well that had really gelled together, and there was some real excitement at the end. I mean, the Baltimore Bays didn't clinch their spot in the championship game until right near the end. I mean, they were battling uh, the Philadelphia uh, squad. The Pittsburgh team was involved a little bit. I mean, there were a lot of teams that were sort of – that that were – respectable towards the end of it. Yeah. And I have some of these numbers in front of me, the uh, you're right. The uh, average attendance for the United soccer association was 7,890, which is, I mean, to start out with, that's not terrible, but they were playing in like these huge baseball and football stadiums. So if you ever see pictures, I mean, it looks like there's nobody in the stands at all in a lot of these games that I've seen. And then, as you said, there was almost 18,000 in the LA Coliseum to watch the finals. Uh, the, the crowd, the opening night crowd in Houston, they had almost 35,000 in the Astrodome. They had 34,965 to be specific. That's incredible. And I, and that's why, I mean, crowds like that is what skewed their average up to almost 20,000 people. But I mean, again, that's, that's not bad. I mean, that's not, I mean, if if you would have asked the people, if they would, if they would take that, I'm sure they would have taken that going into it. But yeah, this match here, I wish I could see a whole, a whole video of the the final between the Wolves and the Whips and as you said it was 6-5 there were two hat tricks there was and it ended as it should have throughout this um, throughout this whole story it ended on an own goal Thirty six minutes into extra time. I mean it's there was a man who played for the whips named Bobby Clark. He was the goaltender and he was quoted in the post after the match saying the World Cup final between England and Germany was not quite as good as this match. Like it really there really was, um it really ended in a very intense way, which was good. And and you would think hopefully that would have pointed towards something, you know, something to build upon, but it really didn't, as we know sadly.
0: Well, we'll have a link to that. I'll, I'll send you that again, uh, and we'll have a link to that uh, that final, that uh, Chick Hearn narrated final, uh, on our website at GoodSeatStillAvailable.com dot com when we post this episode. Um, but despite some, some of those beginnings, right? It seems like you know they got through the first year, the two to two leagues, but it's it's very very clear that uh, the machinations of of the businessmen behind both of these leagues uh, were not even close to being realized in terms of. Uh, financial success and 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 whatnot so perhaps you can describe what the post season nineteen late nineteen sixty seven uh situation was like when both leagues basically realized that you know perhaps their greatest dreams were uh, a longer time in coming after since that first season
1: uh yeah it was Um, I mean, they sat down again, all of them. They had to, I mean, the NPSL was threatening an antitrust lawsuit and you'll see antitrust come up a lot in the history of soccer in the United States, but that was sort of their trump card. I mean, they all sat down and tried, you know, as they, as they, as they did in 1966, they all sat down in the same room and were like, all right, well, how can we, let's negotiate, how can we fix this, et cetera, et cetera. And it was very nasty and contentious. And finally, the NPSL you know, pulled out the trump card. Or OK, we're going to sue you for antitrust. And I don't I mean, I, I'm sure they would have went through with it, but I don't think anybody had the appetite to do that. And I think the other side was just like, all right, well, let's salvage this. Let's all see if we can make some money together. So a deal was eventually uh, hammered out. And you know there were there were no longer gonna be two teams in in each city you know teams either folded or were folded together. The Chicago wolves became the Kansas City wolves. Um, the New York generals, um, took over, uh, the New York Skyliners ceased to exist, for example, things like that. And then a couple of franchises, like all, both of the franchises based in Pennsylvania, uh, the Pittsburgh and Philly franchises folded. So they streamlined it as much as they could, but then they eventually merged together, which, you know, everyone, under the sun knew would have been the right course of action in 1966, their hands were forced financially. And, you know, if they were going to salvage anything, they had to like, sort of band together. So, you know, very contentious negotiations, but by, I want to say by December of 67, they, they they had merged and became what the United Soccer Association was initially slated to be named the North American Soccer League. And that league opened play in 1968 and lasted all the way through to 1964.
0: Did you get any sense of of of, of some of the intrigue behind how these two leagues leagues finally came together in terms of people who approached whom, uh, you know, who any negotiating strength from either side, any of that kind of stuff?
1: Well, the United Soccer Association basically felt that they had they held all the cards. They felt because they had the sanction. And they had the revenue to go along with that in staging, um, you know, international exhibition matches, which again, I I hate to say a broken record, but I just went went over this again in in my book this morning. Andrew Bayer had an incredible um, article, I think two or three of them. He was really covering sort of like the the negotiations. And um, the NPSL went into negotiations, I guess, because they had – the lawsuit you know, stashed in their pocket, but they seem to go in with like this idea that hey, we're completely equal partners, and I think initially the United Soccer Association people are like, "No, you're going to do what we say, like you we have the upper hand, not you. We'll work with you, but don't act like you're equals right now and I think Earl Foreman, he was a gentleman who owned the uh, Washington Whips. He eventually became there was like a negotiating committee, and he was one of those, so I think he was like a sort of voice of calmness. Lamar hunt was I think instrumental and apparently was like a really really sort of soft-spoken guy I mean a a killer businessman, but you know a really I guess calming sort of influence when things like this happened Uh, He was obviously involved in the AFL NFL merger as well So I think he was one of the people saying okay, you know, let's let's try and make this work the commissioner of the NPSL was a man named Ken macker and going back to again, when I'm talking about the, the, this idea of revenue, he, that was one of the first things he, uh, he says this to Andrew buyer, basically like we need, once we finish this, we want our clubs to be able to start playing international competition as soon as possible. Cause again, at that time, sadly, that's where, that's where the big money was. Like, you know, they wanted to be able to have the New York generals play Santos, which happened in 1968. So that was, I think ultimately that the fact that they had the sanction already, the USA and that ultimately the folks on the outside, looking in the rogue league, quote unquote, NPSL, they wanted in on that. So I feel like that's one, I think that was sort of the ultimate leverage. You know, obviously the USA wanted the television contract, but I think they were probably if they really had to tough it out and not merge, I, I'm pretty sure they would have probably got their own. And at least that was probably their thinking. So I feel like they really didn't have much to fear. I feel, I, I think they didn't want to keep dragging it out and losing money, but I felt like they were confident, you know, from what I can gather, they were confident enough to say, we'll work with you, but we're sort of the higher power here. At least that's what, that's what I've been able to discern.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's well, so uh, obviously CBS came back for the second year. You had 17 teams now in the newly renamed North American soccer league. And you, uh, eliminated yes. uh, the competition in those cities that we said had two two teams uh, uh, in each market. So clearly the streamlining that for whatever reason of how it happened finally came about. And apparently the quality of play did improve. I think it's also interesting, mm-hmm. uh, my understanding is that the MPSL's uh, unique scoring system, which we really kind of haven't talked about, was retained. That's right. Um, and and for those uh, unfamiliar, it, it it basically became... Uh, you know, a uh, nice standard as in the years to come as the NASL found its footing, where it, it tried to reward scoring uh, and action yes. uh, in, in the play, right? So rewarding points for not only a win, but also for uh, more offensive uh, goal-scoring uh, mindset, which clearly uh, is uh, something that was quite innovative uh, at the time. Um maybe you want to give us some sense it, as to how yeah. yeah go ahead how 68 sort of uh, came about but uh including the curious little journey uh of uh of the Dallas tornado in their preseason efforts.
1: Oh my goodness, yes. Um but yeah, the scoring system, I think it was universally like loathed by anybody who played professionally outside the United States. Um but yeah, just it was 3 points for a win and then you could get um an additional 3 points. You you could get an initial Point. Uh, excuse me an additional point in the standings for every goal you scored up to three So if you if you won three nil you got six points for example, and, and I think that drove people outside the united states crazy, but the owners were terrified of Nil-nil draws, you know, they were terrified of that because that's something american sports. We don't have we don't have ties And we don't have games where you can go where you don't potentially see any scoring so on both sides of the aisle, they were terrified about that. The United Soccer Association floated the idea of giving, um, uh, mo- you know, monetary rewards for all any game that wasn't, you know, at- that didn't end scoreless and things like that. So they- that was definitely something that they were they were terrified about. They wanted Americans to see this game and see that, you know, that it wasn't, you know, one nil, nil nil. So they they were very much worried about uh, an increased scoring. Um, the Dallas Tornado. My goodness, uh, they. <laughs> I mean, they had the right idea. They wanted to build. You know, they were. They had to build their team from scratch. You know, Dundee United went home. They they played the part of the Dallas uh, Tornado in the United Soccer Association. Um, in inaugural season, they went home to Scotland. So now they Lamar Hunt and people had to build this team from the from the ground up. So they, you know, again, typically they got people from. Liverpool, who, you know, maybe kicked around Everton's youth system at one point in time, but, you know, weren't quite good enough to make it in England. So they recruited a bunch of people like that. And they said, okay, we're gonna have a team building exercise. We're gonna, we're gonna book you guys essentially on a world tour. And they played, they toured for, I mean, it's just incredible. They toured for like, I want to say maybe six months. They played all over the world. They played in Iran. They played in Vietnam while the, like right after the Tet offensive like had happened. I mean, it, it was, it was, uh, absolutely amazing. They were playing Royal teams. They were playing select, uh, the, you know, they, they played the Indian Navy, the Iranian. They, I mean, it was just incredible. They played a Japanese, uh, team in, um, right out right after Christmas, uh, Um, sponsored by Mitsubishi. I mean, just they would would play professional teams whenever they could, like mostly like in Central America. But this tour was just so, I mean, it's so incredible. It's, it it could be a book on its own. Um, I, when I was doing research about it, uh, I was trying to track down to see if maybe I can interview some of, some of the men, because I think almost all of them are still living and they were going to have, I saw in the guardian, there was an article about them that I used and they were, uh they were gonna have a reunion. Um I don't know if that was in two thousand and fourteen or two thousand and fifteen, but they were gonna have a reunion. And there there is there's some like photo evidence of this. I was able to get as much as many of the newspaper clippings as I could to sort of document this tour and there there's a lot about it in my book, but it was just absolutely amazing. So these poor guys they get finally, they survive this tour, they get to the United States ready to play the season, and they're just basically just flat out exhausted. And they ended up being one of like the worst franchises in the history of American sports. At one point, they may have finished the season like this, but at one point their goal differential was minus 81. I mean, it was just, it ended up being a debacle when they actually had to go and play as the Dallas tornado in the, in the NASL. But the, the story sort of in in soccer lore of this tour is just, it's amazing, but it actually didn't do what they wanted it to do in terms of results on the field.
0: Yeah, the coach was a guy named Bob Cap. Uh he um uh he led the Tornado in their regular season. Uh well, actually he was he was fired <laughs> before the season actually really uh, finished, but their final record that year was 2 26 and 4. Um and you may not <laughs> know this, there, there is a book actually devoted to it that I I'm I have yet to find the author of. Uh it's called The Amazing World oh, War of the Dallas Tornado. Uh it is written by a guy named Fun- Oh yeah, j- Fon Stuffles, uh, and I think. Yes, it, I just saw that. Yeah, I think it was uh, published in. Uh, it's published out of, um, I want to say, out of uh, uh, the Netherlands. Uh, so that's that's absolutely something that that we're going to want to pursue because I th- I do think you're right that that's it has got to be just an amazing, interesting story. But but look, uh, you, remember Dallas Tornado Lamar Hunt and uh, and, and friends. You know, and argue, arguably Lamar Hunt was uh, probably the, the longest standing uh, booster of this sport in this country, right? um not necessarily mm-hmm. a bad mm-hmm. concept right but um you know uh the idea though of no. uh of of uh, ensuring that that would be the um uh the way to to prepare a team for uh you know uh, only its second season it, actually it's really first season as a professional team in this country um yeah mm-hmm. uh, an amazing interesting asterisk in in the history of the sport in this country
1: definitely they play i have it in front of me now they have they played 32 games Across five continents, 26 countries, over a seven-month period. I mean, that is just that is just hard to fathom. That's really amazing. And Bob Cap, he's an interesting guy as well because he was Hungarian, and apparently he was a journalist. Um, he, there was some sort of soccer magazine or newsletter or something in, in, in Canada. And he apparently, from what I can tell, allegedly fudged his resume and said he had some sort of association with Manchester United, which is one of the reasons he sort of got got this job anyway. And apparently a lot of this was his idea. And I think Hunt, what, I think he liked the game, but he didn't know a lot about it. I think he was just hands-off. So he probably said, okay, yeah, take it and run with it. Um, but, yeah, even, even, amidst, even amongst uh, the people involved, there's a lot of interesting uh, – Crevices of history I've, I've found in in this episode.
0: Well, nineteen sixty eight was not much better, right? And matter of fact, attendance seemed to be actually worse, uh, even across uh, with all the consolidation. It was only thirty four hundred a game. At what point yes. in your research were you able to tell that even even with CBS back, even with the quality of play improved, uh, you know, even with some some uh, some uh, interesting stories and games and whatnot, but but terrible attendance. Um, the red ink just continued to flow, right? And at what point do you think uh, the folks kind of recognized that uh, that even this was not necessarily going to make things happen uh, to the extent that they wanted to, and maybe the wheels were truly fully coming off?
1: Uh, yeah, I, I think probably by uh, even by like the middle of the season. I mean, the best crowds they drew all all that year, where they had they had uh, Santos play like almost. I think Santos played like ten of those seventeen teams, you know. So they they kind of I don't I don't know if they like took a break in the middle or whatever. But I, but I I think again once they realized that the foreign teams, like internationally known teams, were the only real draws. Actually, no, that's that's the famous year two, where the Oakland Clippers beat Manchester city, Manchester city had won the English first division that year. And they came over to tour America and they ac- they actually lost to the o- Oakland Clippers. And that's, that, that, that became like a big deal in the United States uh, soccer lore. But I, I think in terms of the day to day, like when it was just the New York generals versus the Washington whips, I think the writing on the wall became pretty apparent um, very close into that season that things were not going well. Uh, things were maybe not going to be sustainable. And I think the men involved, I think they realized that it was going to be harder than they thought. The money men, the owners of like the football and baseball teams. I think a lot of them were like, you know, I'm not sure I want to invest five years of my life in this or 10 years and, you know, untold thousands, maybe even millions of dollars before I see any positivity result from it. So I think I'm just going to, you know, I'm going to go back to my baseball team and I think I'm okay with that. I, I, I think there was definitely a lot of that. There were all, there were only a handful of true believers. I think when the going really got tough, well, probably maybe midway through the 68 season. I think a lot of people who weren't fully committed to the game were like, okay, I'll probably to cut my losses after this season. And that's exactly what happened by the end of 1968. There were only five teams left and they decided in 1969 to sort of resurrect the uh, doppelganger idea where they had West Ham come and play as the Baltimore Bays uh they did an exhibition schedule where the you know the five doppelganger teams that were that were imported in Kilmarnock made another appearance uh for example Aston Villa was another these teams all played each other for a few weeks and then the real Bays after that came out and played a schedule and et cetera. It was really kind of a last gasp thing. So I, I guess, sorry, to answer your question, I think it became apparent pretty quickly in 1968 that the merger wasn't the magic wand
0: either. It almost seems that, uh, that uh, by, the, by the end of that 68 season that uh, most of the, with maybe the exception of Lamar Hunt, most of the business people essentially abandoned the sport. And the the folks that yes. kind of picked it up in '69 and '70, in particular, people like Phil Woosnam and, and Clive Toy at the yes. time, you know, really were soccer yes. people, right? That kind of inherited whatever was left over, and kind of strung things together until the next chapter of of what became the NASL's ascendance uh, in the years to come. But um, maybe you can give some sense of, um, I guess, the 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 just the feeling uh, around people in the sport come 6970 um you know when you go from uh three professional groups of people uh wanting to uh inject uh life into the professional version of the sport just a few years earlier to really five teams uh left uh, mm-hmm. after after millions and millions of dollars of lost uh time and energy and dollars um you know, I, I can't imagine that, with, aside from the the truest of believers, uh, that many people saw that there was a a hope for this sport in this country in 1969 professionally.
1: Oh, it, it was it was dire. I mean, there's a quote from in, from in my book from the Baltimore Sun where he was just like it was just bleak. It was like pitch black. You know, we we I mean, it was literally was on life support. I mean, they didn't. They didn't know how they could, you know, 69 was sort of like a Hail Mary. Like, you know, it was such a, it was so interesting. It was such a, it was like almost like a closed circle in a way. Like at that point in time, it was a coup for them to get West Ham to come over and play as the Baltimore Bays as the first half of this weird sort of hybrid schedule, because the West Ham at that point in time was playing like I guess they were kind of almost like the Barcelona of their day. I mean, they were playing like this really beautiful, like flowing, attacking football, and they had they had they had two or three players uh on that team that played on the nineteen sixty six English, you know, national team, the World Cup winning team, uh including Jeff Hurst, who had scored a hat trick in in the final Uh, Sir Bobby Moore was on that team Um, and I think Martin Peters I think they were all on that West Ham team so going with the narrative I literally have a clipping from the Baltimore Sun like because they West Ham couldn't even draw well that summer and it was like and like they literally say in the Sun this clipping I have it's like Jeff Hurst, he's the man who sort of started all this business in America you know 20 million american eyeballs saw him score three goals on nbc you know in the world cup finals and now he is here he is in the flesh to sort of kickstart this thing and people are still staying home you know people aren't coming like and it was i think that's why it was so hard for woosnam and them it's like they if these world class athletes can't draw you know, to save this sport here, then what are we going to do? How how are our, our homegrown people going to be able to to do this? So it was really a conundrum, and going all the way back to Bill Cox at the beginning of our conversation, that was his thing. It's so, like, well, as soon as people get exposed to a West Ham type of of, of team here in America, they'll, they'll come around. They'll see how beautiful this game actually is, and like they'll they'll come and they'll pay to see it, and et cetera. And at that point in time, it was such a low the sport was at such a low ebb here that that proved not to be true. So they were really the people that still were invested in. And I would say Woosnam and Hunt would probably be the two most crucial figures of this period, at least in my view. If for them, there's no way it would have, the league would have survived. There's, there's no way and in 1970, I, I want to say I think they they went into the league with the, the same five teams or maybe less. I know Rochester the Rochester Americans won the NESL that year, I believe. But it was that was 69-70 was probably the definitely the lowest of lows for that league and for the game on a professional level at that time. And then 71, there's a little bit of breathing room, and then 72, there's a buzz, and then Pele drops in not long after that. And then, you know, you have the once in a lifetime era and all of that stuff. But at that point in time, it definitely was dire. And I, and I think even optimistic people like Hunt and Woosnam were like, well, you know, we don't know what to do next. We've tried everything. That's, that's the thing. I don't think, again, I, I mentioned it earlier, but I don't think someone like Lamar Hunt knew how to market soccer. He knew he could market things, but he didn't know how to, you know what I mean? They didn't know, they knew that people would come to see it in America, but they just didn't know how to reach those people. And I think a lot of those people, a lot of those people were not like your most prized demographic of the 1960s. There was sort of still second and third generation Americans who maybe who their purchasing power wasn't what it is now. You know what I mean? People they weren't typically used to marketing to. I think that was one reason why they didn't know how to get these people to actually turn out. But I mean, there were a lot of factors. But yes, that was definitely the probably the lowest ebb until probably the 1980s when the NS when the NASL folded. You know, and before the the um, we got the World Cup and then the Major League Soccer and things like that.
0: Yeah, and this dance between you know quote unquote soccer people and quote unquote business people, right? Uh, and rarely do the two or had the two or or even even today in some respects do the two uh, intersect. Um, you know, you you sort of have yes. the wild dreams and and and, uh, and maybe not, you know, incorrectly so about you know, prof- uh, professional sports entrepreneurs recognizing the quote unquote next big thing. But, you know, look, soccer uh, is unique and continues to be so. Uh, it is the world's game. It is a, a, a sport that, uh, unlike most of the professional sports in this country, uh, is not necessarily born and invented here in the United States. We are not uh, the best players of that sport. Uh, in the world. Uh, and, uh, it mm-hmm. continues to flummox, uh, folks who, uh, you know, see business opportunities, who see stadium th- scenarios, who see approaches to salaries and and television revenue, et cetera, who are, uh, stymied sometimes by the, uh, seemingly questionable and or non-business like approaches to the world's game, uh, in all its, uh, in all its complexity. I, I, the, I will end on this though. The, the, you do have one interesting little chapter, uh, in your book, about uh, one team that arguably could have been uh, part of the NASL in 1969 and maybe be the sixth team, but chose a different path, those being the uh, the California now Clippers, uh, they kind of pursued mm-hmm. sort of an, an exhibition path, uh, uh, they, of, right, playing in a league.
1: Yes, they did. And, and, and again, and, and then I think that's because their owners saw that that's how they could still make money and they did it, it, it was incredible they played they they scored victories over Manchester City uh they scored victories over Dynamo Kiev they had victories over Fiorentina who had won the title in Italy in in either 1968 or 1969 i mean they were play, they were scheduling matches with these like international global powers like once they decided to not be uh, under the rubric of, uh, of the NASL, you know, they they were like certified by like the California state soccer association or something. And you know, eventually the USF, the USSFA stepped in and, you know, they, they, they eventually had money problems as well, but the USSFA was going to you know, sort of put, you know, tamp down on them, you know, because they were making money outside of, you know, the sanction, the rubric of, you know, we're going to get a cut of that. And the other dangerous thing about them was, is that other teams threatened to do what they were doing. The New York generals threatened to do what they were going to do and just sort of go independent and schedule, you know, matches at, at, at you know, Roosevelt stadium or whatever. We, we, you know, we'll, we'll get AC Milan to come in and we'll play them and Roma or whoever. So the Clippers went on this like really incredible voyage for about a year uh, where they just sort of independently scheduled exhibitions in California and beyond, and they played like a lot of the who's who of 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 that day and it's It was really fascinating and I was able to I was lucky enough to be able to interview the general manager of that team uh, like I mentioned before Derek Likti, so I got some good insight onto how the team was put together and it was incredible like uh <laughs> it was this fusion of players from the former Yugoslavia and from places like Costa Rica. And they just meshed Two entirely different cultures and even ways of playing the game. Uh, and they just really meshed together. I mean, they had, they had an incredible coach and it just worked and they were able to sort of live out these, uh, dream of, they were, there was a great quote about them. They were financed in Texas. They were, uh, They were birthed in Europe or they were um, financed in Texas. They were staffed by Europe and Central American employees. They were they trained in California, but they became truly American in their ability to sort of adapt to sort of melting pot ethos. They, They could have emblematically been like a really exciting success story that could have pointed the way forward to American soccer. And again, it was like one of these weird near misses. This was happening right at this exact same time that I'm talking about being the lowest ebb in, 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 in the history of the sport. And, uh, at that point in time, and there's all this acrimony and there's mergers and teams folding. Meanwhile, this team's st- staging exhibitions against Dynamo Kiev who were, who were like a European power and they played a three-match series against them, and it was a complete stalemate: one loss, one draw, one victory. I mean, it was really amazing.
0: Well, it's a it's it's a fascinating chapter in in the uh, the uh, uh, history of professional soccer in this country. And you know, uh, I think you know, as we see the success of Major League Soccer, we debate about uh, how the sport is governed uh, going forward with the new president of the U.S. Soccer Federation and the U.S. Soccer Organization uh the inability to to qualify for the world cup despite uh, progress or seeming progress over the uh the decades since uh you know since the uh, the 90s uh, you know you it, some yeah. of these issues though some of these uh themes are still very much with us and it's really important to understand uh how those themes uh, perhaps began and uh in some respects haven't uh, fully been solved yet Uh, But, you know, I I think every generation thinks that uh, when they discover or they see uh, certain things, that's all new and uncharted territory. But, uh, you know, we look back, and which is partially why we do some of these uh, silly podcasts, right, to look back into some of these things that, uh, you know, the proverbial uh, those who uh, ignore history are are doomed to repeat it. And, um, you know, professional soccer in this country has never been a straight line. And uh, the initial uh, forays into drawing those lines began around this period of time, which is what make makes this book uh, fascinating and this topic uh, uh, similarly. Do you want to um, uh, give us some promotional goodness as to uh, where we can find the book and uh, maybe even what you might be working on or thinking about going forward, either this sport or, or other projects in general?
1: Oh well, thank you very much. Uh, the the book is called "The Rebirth of Professional Soccer in America." And it was published by Roman and Littlefield. You can find it pretty much anywhere you you uh, go to look for books. It's on Amazon. It's on Barnes and Noble's website. It's you can order it directly from Roman and Littlefield uh, on their website. Um, I believe you can even get it on Target, at Target or Walmart on their websites as well. Um, right now, uh, I am s- after. I did this book. I I took a a break. I still have all my research uh, that I use for this book, and there's still some interesting, I'm hoping, avenues to explore further about this. Uh, One of the things I was looking at is uh, the history of factory teams, uh, because I found the existence of uh, the factory teams, or I'm sure you know this, uh, where this game started, like Bethlehem Steel, in 1919 that's like sort of where it started here in america those are like the first major teams like where factories would sponsor these teams um and there's a lot of research done about those t- those types of teams in the northeast but i've discovered evidence of teams like that in the south and even in the uh, pacific northwest boeing had one for example uh so that's something i don't know what the audience for that would be but that's one thing i was considering about maybe doing some research on and um I'm still really interested in the game. I'm kind of hoping. I'm also a huge music fan, so I have some research topics in music that I'm looking at, but nothing concrete right now. Um, thank you, though, for the opportunity to uh, for, for me to talk about that. Though I really appreciate it. Oh, my
0: gosh, it's a it's it's a tremendous uh, a tremendous book, a very interesting read. And again, if you call yourself a soccer fan in this country uh, and to not know the uh, the nooks and crannies of The rebirth, I guess, of top tier professional soccer in this country around the late 1960s and even prior. Uh, You uh, you owe it to yourself to uh, to grab a copy and devour this book as as I did uh, and have. I um, I can't thank you enough. This has been awesome. I look forward to staying in touch. And uh, I uh, also throw the uh, challenge out to our listeners. And and I'm I'm overwhelmed and surprised by uh, how this uh, podcast has, uh, despite all the odds, sort of. permeated uh, certain nooks and crannies of, uh, uh, of sports intelligentsia out there uh, to find uh, perhaps some of the, uh, the missing uh, pieces of media that we kind of alluded to before. Uh, certainly the CBS broadcasts uh, of the NPSL and then later NASL in 1967 and 68. Uh, we obviously would love to talk to Jack Whitaker and, and see if he can bring us some memories of that, maybe some of the old ISL, International Soccer League broadcasts. Again, we think WPIX New York, uh, now owned by Tribune, uh, had a bunch of games on the air and, and CBS certainly broadcast uh, some snippets of some of those finals as well. Uh, we'd love, love, love to find some of that video and uh, and I think, uh, you know, add to the uh, the archival history of this sport in this country. So the challenge has been uh, laid out and laid bare. Uh, let's hope we can uh, maybe, uh, collectively try to figure out some of those things. And you know what? It also may not be a bad timing for this conversation and that, uh, uh, that call to arms, so to speak, because uh, as you probably are aware, the uh, National Soccer Hall of Fame will be relaunching uh, in its new digs in Frisco, Texas, uh, we understand later this year, probably the fall or early winter of 2018, uh, and uh, obviously great opportunity to uh, not only renew interest in this chapter of uh, professional soccer in this country, but uh, perhaps start to find and and uh, diligently, um, uh, secure some of those, uh, those uh, pieces of tape and video and, and other archival stuff that, uh, for ha- for whatever reason, uh, still remain elusive. So, um, I don't know, let's, uh, collectively, uh, make a pact to see if we can find some of this stuff, huh?
1: Definitely. I'm, I'm in, um, I, I think that would be fantastic for the world to be able to see some of this stuff. I'm, I'm dying to see it myself.
0: That's a, it f- continues to be a fascinating topic, and, uh, and I still think uh, there are lots of uh, nooks and crannies yet to be explored uh, in that story. The birth, the rebirth, uh, the full-fledged uh, efforts, misguided and uh, misinformed as they might have been, noble in, uh, in pursuit perhaps on some levels, uh, folly on others. Uh, the uh, professional soccer uh, rebirth, shall we say, uh, in the United States of the late. 1960s and uh, a very interesting story I, I the, the book that Dennis has written is, uh, is chock full of, uh, of good stuff very well researched and strangely really one of the only books kind of uh, kind of focused on this topic and I suspect as the uh, National Soccer Hall of Fame uh, gets rebooted uh, later this year in uh, in suburban Dallas and Frisco the rethinking and the rediscovery I guess of some of the earliest days of pro, pro soccer uh, at least the modern day version of such uh, will start to come out and uh, hopefully a little bit more detail. Uh, as you can clearly tell, there are uh, uh, some some interesting uh, uh, things that are still out there. We, for example, would love to find some time to talk to Jack Whitaker, uh, if he is uh, willing and able to, uh, to talk more about some of his early days at CBS, uh, covering a little bit of the ISL as well as the uh, initial uh, NPSL games. Obviously, he was uh, part of CBS's coverage as they sort of came and went over the years. He had a seminal uh, uh, commentary after Pele's uh, first uh, game with the New York Cosmos in 1975. Uh, that is a, an amazing YouTube clip. We'll try to put that up on our website uh, for you all to enjoy that uh, harkens back to these days of 1967 and 68. Uh, and so he's somebody we want to get. We clearly uh, also have uh, tons of uh, video to find, uh, whether they be snippets of the games uh, from CBS in those early years, etc. Uh, we put that out to our audience as well. And let's not forget the book. The book is called The Rebirth of Professional Soccer in America by our guest Paul Reiths, subtitled The Strange Days of the United Soccer Association. Uh, That is available uh, wherever fine books are found. Uh, It is published by our friends at Roman and Littlefield. Uh, You can find a link to that book. Uh, on our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com and uh, that of course is uh, tied to episode 47. You will see that listed with a whole bunch of other stuff including we have a couple of other links up there too. Uh, You will find a link to the book that we talked about as well and I'd love to get the author at some point of that called The Amazing World Tour of the Dallas Tornado uh, by Fonz Stuffles Uh, and uh, that is uh, an interesting book as well. That's the story of the uh, Bob Cap led Lamar Hunt owned Dallas Tornado in their sort of preseason tour that uh, basically led to disaster in the first year of the full-fledged NASL in 1968, but uh, but a crazy story that. Uh, And also, you know, for the full uh, background uh, to this conversation, uh, I highly encourage you if you have not listened to it already, is our episode number six, uh, back from last uh, spring uh, with our friend columnist Paul Gardner, the dean of soccer columnists, in this country Uh, and you'll remember in that conversation uh, we talk uh, uh, at length extensively about uh, paul's early days in the united states uh, as a fledgling writer and his involvement with some of the topics we talked about today the international soccer league bill cox in particular uh, the united soccer association we get into uh, madison square garden being one of the uh, owners of one of the teams and their uh, perhaps misguided uh, attempts to Uh, to make a mint, if you will, with this sort of soccer thing without, of course, being uh, really knowledgeable about the inner workings of soccer. Uh, So that's a fascinating conversation with Paul Gardner. That's our episode number six. You'll find a link to that, of course, on our website, too. Again, as you can imagine, if you you haven't sort of figured it out already, goodseatsstillavailable.com. That's the website. That's where all of our old episodes are. That's where all the links to all kinds of media live. You'll see all kinds of fun imagery there. Uh, you will also find links to our social profiles. And again, if uh, you want to go to those things, too, and follow us in all those places, please, by all means, uh, at Twitter, we are at Good Seats Still. Uh, on Instagram, you will find us at Good Seats Still Available. Uh, and, of course, on Facebook, you'll find a page devoted to us as well. So give us some likes and some, uh, some emoji uh, love there, too. We appreciate that. Uh, if you want to send us some email, just go to our website. You'll find a link to us there. Yada, yada, and yada. Uh, Last but not least, we want to thank uh, our friends at Podfly Productions. In particular, yes, there he is, the king of all kings of uh, audio and podcast production, Jerry Payne, the man who puts it all together for us and uh, and makes it sound uh, halfway decent. And we appreciate Jerry's uh, yeoman-like effort every week to put up with me and us to make this thing sound halfway decent. Podfly Productions, podfly.net is the website. Check them out, especially if you're interested in podcasting. You will be happy that you did. Okay, thanks very much for listening. We will uh, talk to you next week. God knows what topic, but uh, I, I guarantee it'll be interesting. Thank you for listening. I appreciate it tremendously. And until then, take care, everybody.